Well, good morning. It's good to see everybody again. If you uh, have your Bibles, go ahead and turn to Romans chapter 1. Uh, today, the title of our study is The Gospel and Worship, and how idolatry leads us away from God and, and Christ brings us back. Yesterday, we kind of started off looking at what the gospel is and how important the hope of the gospel is because it shows us Christ. And today, we're going to talk about the, the kind of the great enemy of that hope, that what like leads us to, what pulls us away from our hope in the gospel, and that is idolatry. Well, I'll tell you another like little, I guess, fun fact about me. Um, as a kid, I had no money. I think most young kids don't have like lots of access to their parents' money, so I would trade and sell basketball cards. Does anyone here collect basketball cards? Anyone? Is that a thing anymore? Okay. Well, I was never interested in a uh, in an even trade. It's to me an even trade was pointless. I couldn't like fathom the reason someone would go to like a card shop and pay seventy five dollars for a seventy five dollar card or like twenty five dollars for a twenty five dollar comic book. The goal of trading for me was always making money, and it's how I made money in sixth grade through high school. Um, so. The goal of making of trading was for making making money, which meant I had to give people what they thought they wanted while I knew the real value, which I think is like the definition of a hustle. So that's what I was doing, especially in junior high. So a good trade and one that I made pretty frequently with this one neighbor who lived down the street from me was I would trade Scottie Pippins for Michael Jordans. So like his favorite person was Scottie Pippen. I don't know if you guys know who Scottie Pippen was. He was on the Bulls, same time as Michael Jordan. And um, I would, yeah, I would just rack up Michael Jordans. I currently have about 72 Michael Jordans because of many trades that I made with that wonderful neighbor. But the greatest trade I ever made was this Penny Hardaway, which I bet very few people know who Penny Hardaway is. Maybe, maybe you do. For a Kobe Bryant, for a pretty rare Kobe Bryant rookie card. So and I think most people know who Kobe Bryant is. Now, you might be wondering... Like, how did I live with all the guilt of, like, ripping other, like, kids off in middle school? And I have to tell you, I felt fine, and this is how I kind of rationalized it. I'm giving them exactly what they want, right? I'm, I'm giving them what they want. They didn't care about, like, the objective monetary value. They're not looking up how much their cards are worth. They just cared about things like basketball and basketball cards and their fans. I, I just happen to only care about money. <laughs> Yeah, so, yeah. <laughs> no, it's true. I mean, what are you supposed to do? Like, it's hard to get a job when you're in the sixth grade. Well, this morning we're going to look at the gospel and worship with a special focus on idolatry. Idolatry is what goes wrong in our worship. Idolatry is how we give away our worship. Idolatry is taking our worship that belongs to God and giving it to something or someone else. So just like a money-hungry middle schooler, idolatry works by giving us what we think we need or want in exchange for what is of great, great value. In our idolatry, we trade God. We trade God who is real and satisfying and who alone has enduring value for all eternity, and we exchange him for some part of his creation. Like God made us for worship. He gave us his creation, all of creation, to help us worship him. Worship is, is kind of the way we're supposed to relate to him, to exalt him, to love him above all else, to celebrate him. Ephesians 
actually says it's kind of our identity. It says that we exist for the praise of his glorious grace, that we, he predestined us that we might be, that we might exist for this reason, for the praise of his glorious grace. So we're made to worship, to exalt God above all else. Right? Not just like, okay, he needs to be my number one priority, but he, I have to truly believe he's better than everything else, more beautiful than all else, with greater authority than anything else in our lives, and the one by whom and for whom everything exists. So what idolatry does is it erases God's value. It replaces him with some gift, and then it leads us to rebel against him. And that's what we're going to be unpacking today, how idolatry works in our heart, our, each of our hearts, so that we let go of the hope of the gospel. So we're going to look at Romans 1, 18-25, and this is going to be kind of the passage that will guide our study of idolatry this morning. Romans 1, 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up to the lusts of their heart, to impurity, to dishonoring of their bodies among themselves because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. So you can even hear that exchange, that trade right in that final verse. At this point in Romans, Paul is beginning a long discussion of the gospel that will go all the way through Romans 8. But the first three chapters of Romans, Romans 1, 2, and 3, he dedicates to discussing sin. In fact, I would argue that Romans 1, 2, and 3 are the like longest explanation of the nature of sin in all of Scripture. And the way Paul starts his discussion of sin is by talking about idolatry. This is how it starts. Misplaced worship. According to this passage, misplaced worship is the root and the source of every evil thing. The evil stuff you think about, say, the stuff you choose, the evil things you desire. It is Idolatry is the reason for all our personal and relational and societal dysfunction. You and I think and speak and do because we worship. And when we, and when we put the creation where God alone belongs, this endless catalog of bad things starts to happen in our lives. So this is the core spiritual disease that keeps us from enjoying Christ. So today we're going to see three ways idolatry leads our hearts to rebel against God so that we can better guard our hearts. So first, idolatry erases God. Idolatry erases God. The phrase Paul uses at the end of verse 18 to describe how we all erase God is suppress the truth. Right? That's his like phrase for erase God, suppress the truth. Erasing God is, is something active. It's something we do with God. Suppressing the truth about God is this stubborn and aggressive war that we all wage. 
But we've kind of discovered, I think, how to make this war against God in our hearts like a peaceful routine. As we like to sit and maybe enjoy the comfort of a TV show, play some Smash Brothers, go shopping, catch up on a Netflix show, get into some hobby, browse social media after a long day of work, find a great deal on Amazon, do extra credit stuff for school, achieve a personal best in sports. As we kind of give our focus to all these things, this subtle shift happens in our hearts. The the pleasures and uh, of all these innocent pursuits, these good things, they just start to weigh a little bit more than God. And we weigh those pleasures not with like pounds on a scale, but with time. Like how much time are you giving to those things? Minutes, hours, nights off, days off, moment by moment, thought by thought, we can crush the truth about God. That's how we suppress him. We suppress the truth about God with with sentences that just seem for a moment like more beautiful, more meaningful, more wise and comforting. We just occupy our minds with the creation so much that we begin to believe that on its own this world has has a beauty that can save us a a technology that will redeem us uh, a knowledge that will deliver us and what happens is little by little the the good good news of the gospel gets muted we turn our back on christ who alone is our hope to, to watch some tv to catch up with a friend exercise we wage war with our attention moment by moment we trust we, we we crush the gospel with our attention so this is how we suppress the truth about god it's a silent war we all wage so just think for a moment when did christ have your attention this past week how much time how many hours were given to christ and what tends to hold your attention paul tripp describes this great exchange of worship in Romans 1 this way. He says, No human solution can fix our replacement instincts and our replacement lifestyle. No set of rules will free us. No social or political insights will liberate us. We have met the enemy and it is us. And because it is, we have no power to defeat it. We will forget God. We will replace him with something else. So in verse 18, Paul is saying, that this has ignited God's holy wrath from the beginning. All sin for all time has been about suppressing the truth about God by exchanging him for something he made. And, and if Eve could suppress the truth about God with a piece of fruit, believing it could give something that God could not give, we can do it with anything. Netflix, hanging out, schoolwork, we can replace him with anything. And God's wrath is actually against this. And by wrath, I mean his righteous anger against sin. So Paul is saying specifically that all people of all races, Christians and non-Christians, throughout all time should be able to perceive two truths about God. He says they're plainly revealed in creation, his power and his deity. He's saying when anyone looks at a tree or a flower or a volcano or a planet, they should make two realizations. One, that God exists. Because these things I'm looking at are a painting, not the painter. This is a design, not the designer. So God exists. The second thing that should be obvious to everyone is that God is powerful. 
watching like a blue sky turned to lavender and gold before going dark, hearing thunder, seeing lightning, zooming out to see the vastness of the universe, all communicates that God is powerful. Um, one commentator writes this, God has stitched into the fabric of the human mind his existence and his power so that they are instinctively recognized when one views the created world. So Paul is saying everybody sees this. This is why we're without excuse. Everybody in the world of all time should be able to sit make these two conclusions about God. Paul is not talking about the knowledge that saves people. He's not talking about the gospel, but the knowledge about God that everybody pushes down. Paul is telling this, the history of the world's idolatry, how knowledge of God's existence and power has been suppressed and distorted from the beginning. Now, according to Paul, everyone has closed their eyes to his power and deity and exalted creation. Right? The sad reality for us, though, is the sin that plunged mankind into darkness, the sin that condemns all mankind since creation, is still active in our hearts as, as Christians. It doesn't define us as it did before Christ saved us, but we can still suppress the truth about God. And what makes our idolatry so more, so much more insidious is that for us as Christians, we have a lot more truth to suppress in order to sin. We have to suppress so much more than just God exists and he's powerful. We have to suppress so much more. If you've grown up in the church, if you've heard truth, you have to push down so much more truth in order to sin. You have to suppress the gospel. We not only suppress our almighty God, the architect and sustainer of the universe, we suppress his story of our redemption. We have to do that in order to sin. We take the crucified, risen, and living Savior and bury him under whatever feels more interesting in the moment, a video game, uh, schoolwork, a relationship. He's just generally not as important to us. So to, to suppress God, to erase him, is not difficult. It feels natural because it is. This is this kind of goes with the grain of our hearts. We don't have to kind of look at something and say, you know, I think Smash Brothers is more valuable than Jesus. Like, I would never say that. But I can just live like that. I can say, like, this TV show or this hobby is better than God. I'm never going to say that. But I can live that way. Now, the opposite of suppressing is exalting. And the way you exalt something, like I said, is, is with your attention. It's what you meditate on. As we meditate, we're kind of mentally chewing on something. And the more we just mentally chew, we turn up the volume of, on something, and it becomes more and more important to our hearts. So we suppress the truth about God when we disconnect him from anyone or anything that he has put in our lives. And we start to think about that thing or that person apart from God. Right? I want you just to think for a second. Think about something really good in your life. Something really good. What makes it good? Is it good because you see God as the giver? Is it good because you see how God is using it in your life? Is it good because you have how you're able to glorify God with that gift? We erase God from our lives when we disconnect him from the gifts that he gives. And you can test if you are erasing God in your life by reflecting on, on the two responses that Paul lists in verse 21. He says, just, do I give thanks to God for this gift? And do I know how to honor God with this gift? 
in those questions, I can recognize, do I see this gift, right? My education, my family, my hobbies as, as from him, through him and back to him. Is this gift instrumental in some small way in helping me worship him and exalt him? If everything is from him, through him and back to him, then why do we have so many things in our lives that feel so disconnected from him? This is what Christ died to rescue for us. He died to rescue my worshiping heart so I would stop erasing God from all these different categories of my life. I would not erase God when I make plans or when I, when I actually, when I'm suffering. Christ died for my sins so that I could finally see God and enjoy everything he gives me for his glory. Christ died to rescue my worshiping heart because he loves me and wants me to see all of his good gifts in the light of his love. So I want to point you to another C.S. Lewis book. This is another one of my faves. In C.S. Lewis's book, The Silver Chair, there's this enchantress called the Green Lady. Who's read The Silver Chair? Is a lot of people. Okay, some people. I highly recommend it. So there's this enchantress called the Green Lady who uses magic to erase Aslan and Narnia. And if you don't know, Aslan is like this picture of Christ, and Narnia is supposed to be this picture of the kingdom of Christ. And he, she wants to erase Aslan and Narnia from these kids' minds. So she tosses some green powder onto a fire in this fireplace, so in this small room that she's in with these children. So the room starts to feel kind of sweet, and there's this drowsy smell. And then she starts to play a mandolin and begins telling these children that, all the truth they believed about Aslan and Narnia was just a dream. And she keeps speaking until the children think that the only reality that exists is what is in that room right there. Right? There's this like lamp, a fireplace, and a chair. And she tells them there is no Narnia, there is no overworld, there's no sky, there's no sun, there's no Aslan. And then she says, and now to bed all and let us live a wiser life tomorrow. And that is almost the end of the story, right? They're going to live as prisoners thinking that the only thing that exists is this room. But then um, they come to their senses because their friend Puddle Glum, who's like this kind of frog-like man, he sticks his foot in the fireplace and there's a terrible smell that enters the room, and, and, they wake, and he wakes up from the pain. So he wakes up from his stupor, and Puddleglum declares to this green lady that he would rather die and, than live in her so-called real world that, where she's erased Narnia and Aslan. And he says a, small, a short life is a small loss if there is no Aslan. Like Life is just drained from all of its meaning if you erase God from his universe. The problem with our human hearts is, is, is not what we don't know, but what we will not know, what we refuse to accept as real and true day after day. If our great enemy was just ignorance, then salvation would come through information, education. But Paul is saying the problem isn't your access to information. The problem is what we are hardwired to do with the truth. We suppress it. So our great enemy is ourselves. We are all the green lady in the story, erasing God from our days and our world, reducing his kingdom to a tiny room that we look to to be satisfied. And we need to stand in each other's lives like puddle glum and say, where is God? Life is not worth living 
without him. So the first step in understanding idolatry is seeing that it erases God. Second, we see that idolatry replaces God. It replaces God. Look at verses 23 and 25. Paul explains how we replace God in his creation in these two verses, kind of the outward and the inward replacement. He describes the exchange of trading the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man, birds and animals, and creeping things. So he kind of wrote that, I think, in verse 23 in a way that to help you feel just the insanity of this choice, right? Like he puts creeping things, like we can put anything, even creeping things, over God. And then in verse 25, he describes the exchange as, as trading the truth about God for a lie. So that's what happens in our hearts, uh, which leads to worshiping the creature over the creator. So verse 23 is what it looks like on the outside. Verse 25 is what it looks like on the inside. So in idolatry, we're replacing God with some element of his world, his creation. But that only happens because a lie has become more valuable to me than the truth. That is why God has been replaced. Uh, St. Augustine says famously, he loves thee too little, O God, who loves anything beside thee, which he loves not for thy sake. He loves thee too little, O God, who loves anything beside thee, like anything in your life beside God, which he doesn't love for the sake of God. So we can erase the creator. Um, we are blind to God. When we erase the creator, we are blind to God's design of for creation. Right? Anything can serve as an idol, even the very best things, especially the very best things in life. Our hearts can take good things, family, friends, you name it, and make them ultimate things. And that's what Paul means when he says, claiming to be wise, they became fools. Because when we separate the gift, that good gift, away from the giver, we foolishly drain the significance of that gift of all of its meaning. It no longer has real meaning. Without God as giver and designer, why do you have relationships? I mean, they exist to make you happy, make you feel a certain way, to meet your expectations. Without God as giver and designer, why does money exist? Maybe to provide some status, a feeling of security. Without God as giver and designer, why does school exist? Maybe to ensure your future or to please your parents. Maybe that's how you're living when it comes to school. Without God as giver and designer, no one has real answers for the questions that matter. Because this is God's universe. And by erasing him, we've, we've traded his rich reality of grace to chase shadows, to try to understand our lives apart from him is insanity. So what is the significance of your friendships without God? What is the purpose in your sports without God? How do you enjoy a sunset without God? Can you do it? Timothy Keller writes, each culture is dominated by its own set of idols. Each has its own priesthood and totems and rituals. Each one has its shrines, whether office towers and spas and gyms, studios or stadiums, where sacrifices must be made in order to procure the blessings of the good life and ward off disaster. He says, we may not physically kneel before the statue of Aphrodite, but many young women today are driven into depression and eating disorders by an obsessive concern over their body image. We may not burn incense to Artemis, 
But when money and career are raised to cosmic proportions, we perform a kind of child sacrifice, neglecting family and relationships to achieve a higher place in business, to gain more wealth and prestige. And a really clear and also sickening picture of this is Israel. Israel's idolatry that's described in Jeremiah 2, 12 and 13. You don't have to turn there. I'll just read it for us. Jeremiah 2, 12 and 13. Be appalled, O heavens, at this. Be shocked. Be utterly desolate, declares the Lord. For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters. You get that erased part. And hewn out, hewed out cisterns for themselves. Broken cisterns that can hold no water. So there's the erase and then there's the replace. Israel was and is this super dry and arid place. Water was a scarce commodity. And if you found water, like a spring of fresh water, you found your home. Or you would buy that parcel of land. You would build your life there because water was so precious. You would protect it. You would claim that land. It would be foolish then to turn your back on that precious life-giving fountain and dig a hole in the dirt and plunge your face into the dirt in, in, in an attempt to suck life from the sand. But this is the picture that God is giving us of Israel's idolatry. And it's a picture of our idolatry too. We forsake God, the source and fountain of all life, the source of all refreshment and satisfaction. And instead we dig and we scrape into the wilderness of this world and we try to suck satisfaction out of the sands of this world. So what are you drinking from? Are you drinking hope and joy and life from the fountain of your relationship with God that he has graciously given you through Christ? Is your source of hope kind of just getting through the week, getting to the weekend? Is the, the comfort of your soul the uh, compliments of your peers? Is your great refuge another night of TV or video games? Does your security come from your report card or your SAT, ACT scores? Are you fearful and anxious when you don't have those things? Do these things dominate your thought life and conversations? If so, you might be trying to suck satisfaction from a broken cistern. And our souls will dry up, dry up, and if we exhaust our hopes on um, someday I'm going to get into this university, someday I'm going to have this much money, someday I'm going to do this, someday I'm going to be this good at sports. And John Piper explained replacing God in idolatry this way. He said, the greatest enemy of hunger for God is not poison, but apple pie. It's not the banquet of the wicked that dulls our appetite for heaven, but the endless nibbling at the table of the world. It's not the X-rated video, but the primetime dribble of triviality we drink in every night. The greatest adversary of love to God is not his enemies, but his gifts. And the most deadly appetites are not for the poison of evil, but for the simple pleasures of earth. For when these replace an appetite for God himself, the idolatry is scarcely recognizable and almost incurable. Um, two years ago, Minecraft creator Marcus Pearson closed on a $70 million house in Beverly Hills. He outbid Beyonce and Jay-Z and got this sweet pad. He decided quickly that he wanted the home and he paid all cash, $70 million. It has 15 bathrooms. Each one has a toilet that costs $5,600. It has a car lift, which moves cars from the garage into underground storage. 
and he's my age. This happened when he was 35. He became a billionaire when he sold his company, Minecraft, to Microsoft for $2.5 billion. So after moving into his amazing home, he started a series of tweets. And this is what he said. The problem with getting everything is you run out of reasons to keep trying. And then he said, partying with famous people and a bunch of friends, able to do whatever I want. I've never felt more isolated. And then one of the last tweets he's put out there before, I think some publicist probably got a hold of him and told him to stop. He's, <laughs> the last one was, he, uh, he said, I sit around and wait for my friends with jobs and families to have time to do stuff, watching my reflection in the monitor. Creator of Minecraft, $70, billion, $70 million house. The, the pleasures of this life, they are not evil in and of themselves. They're not vices. I, I think we can say that the, the toilet, no matter how much it costs, is not evil in and of itself. These are gifts of God. They're your basic meat and potatoes and coffee and gardening and reading and decorating and traveling and investing and TV watching and internet surfing and shopping and exercising and collecting and talking. And all of it can become deadly substitutes for God. So what are your idols? Do you know what they are, and does someone else know what they are in your life? What or who do you run to for pleasure or for an escape from the stress of your life? Where do you go to escape the stress of your life? You'll never escape the draw of idols by thinking, I just need to be a better Christian. I just need to do more. God wants your heart. He wants your love and affections. So we need to ask, how do I find God in the midst of what I'm feeling? What are the precious promises of the gospel? And how do I turn to God in the midst of this? One question I'm really like pushing for people to ask each other, for friends to ask each other is, can you check my heart on something? I don't know if you guys have heard me say that before, but I <clears throat> we can invite people to talk to us about what we treasure. To help us see, is Christ being replaced? G.K. Chesterton said it well. He said, when we cease to worship God, we don't worship nothing. We worship anything. And because we're worshipers, if we don't worship God, we will forever inflate stuff and people so that we can have something to bow down to. So idolatry starts in our hearts by erasing God, then replacing God. And finally, it moves to turning us against God. Paul describes this final step of idolatry with the phrase, God gave them up. God allows us to feel the emptiness of getting that thing that we thought we wanted. The hollowness of every lie that we believed. Your heart will give you as many reasons to trust an idol as the gospel gives you to trust in Christ. I mean, if you think away about the way that your heart speaks to you, and think about the way Christ talks. Just, I put them side by side. Jesus says, come unto me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and you will find rest for your souls. Christ promises you that rest in him. But your heart will say, well, so does money. So does sex. So does success at school. So does the praise of a parent or a peer. All those things provide rest for me. Christ promises to be your savior and deliverer and redeemer and provider. But your heart is going to tell you, well, 
as so does like dating the right person and having a perfect body and having status or power or success at school. Idolatry leads us to defect from God by actually borrowing his promises that are meant to lead us to Christ. And as our worship turns toward idols, we begin to live under their rule. And they always demand more. They say, give more, do more, spend more. But with idolatry, the more we sacrifice to what we're worshiping, the less we get back from that idol. Idols control us because we think without them, life is meaningless. When in fact, it is the idol itself that has made life feel meaningless. Psalm 115.6 says that when we are worshiping like this, we become what we worship. And idols are dead and lifeless. So our allegiance to them empties our lives. We feel less energy, loss of time, loss of joy and meaning. So what is the purpose in our idolatry? Our hearts are deceitful, but they're not random. They don't just drift aimlessly apart from away from Christ. Our hearts move with desire and passion and strategy with the goal of sponging God out from every corner of our existence. Right? Our hearts are supernaturally deceitful and rebelling against God and rebelling against his kingdom is the settled goal of each of our hearts. Right? We were enemies of God, according to Romans 5, verse 10. And our hearts want us to keep living that way once again. That is why the greatest consequence of our idolatry is our sin sin gets worse and worse the more we suppress our savior and assault his kingdom so this is idolatry's chief objective your sin not mainly because it hurts you it can sin can feel like a super individual thing that just hurts me but your sin is a weapon against our savior's kingdom you might think like you know, your moment of lust in front of your phone or computer screen is just about you and idolizing comfort, but your heart led you to that moment to open fire on the kingdom of God, and it will affect your relationships. While we think that our feelings of bitterness toward our parents or toward a sibling is, are justified, right? that, that sin is, is actually scrubbing out Christ's love and mercy from your life and from your relationships. It's actually bigger than just you. Your sin is about going against the kingdom of God, hiding Christ. Idolatry is not merely a rejection of God. It is a rebellion mounted against God and his kingdom. And we live like his enemies once again. Our hearts are deceitful, but they're not random. Sin is not just this random thing that happens. Our hearts are bound and determined to make our Lord and Savior our enemy once again, even after we've been rescued. But there is this stunning and rescuing beauty in the gospel. As you put our faith in Christ's death on the cross, trusting that he took God's wrath for all our idolatry. He died for it. And he rose again to free us from that power of idolatry. As we put our faith in that, we're, we're given this gift of real worship once again. Worship is restored to God and a real relationship comes back into focus. We are given the gift of real worship to God and a real relationship with him. We get to be close to him. Not only does the gospel rescue us when we first trust in Christ, but it restores and restores and restores our worship every time we turn to idols. We suppress, we replace, we rebel, but when we repent, 
Christ restores and restores our worship. In verse 21, Paul describes our idolatry as forgetting to honor and give thanks to God. So what does the gospel do? It gives that back to us. It connects God once again to all of his gifts. But because of the gospel, we have the ability to honor and thank God for everything he's given, everything he's made. And that's how we start to truly enjoy his gifts and begin to worship God again. As the gospel colors our world, we see God's love for us in the cross. And then we begin to see his love for us in everything he's given us. Relationships, friends, video games, you name it. We can experience the love of God. Food, money, school. We can use whatever it is to worship him. As a middle schooler, as I told you, I gave what was worthless to take what was valuable. I traded Scottie Pippins for Michael Jordans. And it's the same deal idolatry gives us. As we fill our lives with worthless idols and give up what is of greatest value. But the beautiful grace of God in the gospel is that God gave up what was of greatest value. His son, Jesus Christ. And he traded Christ to take our infinite debt of sin so that our hearts could be restored, rescued, and brought to life, so that we could finally know God and live out the glorious reason that we were made, to bring praise to his glorious grace. Let me pray for us. Gracious Father, I thank you for just the the stunning and rescuing beauty of your love in Christ. Now, while we sin, we rebel, we erase you from our lives, We give our attention to all the things that maybe seem more pressing, more important. You don't just sit back and watch, but you pursue us. You love us. You restore us. Your spirit works in our hearts to help us repent and to turn back to you. Lord, I pray for each of the the students here. I pray for the leaders and my own heart, Father, that you would clarify for us what our idols are, what pulls us away from your love, enjoying it? What are the categories of our lives that we have tried to live apart from you that are not for you, that do not make Christ supreme? Lord, our lives are so rich. You have given us so much. We pray that every minute and every moment of our lives would be just this unceasing worship and and praise to you for your glorious grace that has been so lavishly uh, poured out on us. We thank you and we praise you. In Christ's name I pray. Amen. All right.